Welcome to episode 38 of Around the Jewish World with Tom Price. This episode and the next one or two will move slowly across North Africa from Egypt, which we've already covered, to Morocco, which we covered in several episodes. And we'll start in Libya, where I am violating my own rule of not talking about a place I haven't been physically. I've been to some pretty strange places for an American Jew, including Syria, but I've never set foot in Libya. A recent article in Haaretz impelled me to talk about Libya today, and I have had contact with Libyan Jews because thousands of them and their descendants live in Rome for strange historic reasons. And at the Jewish Museum in Rome, which is a magnificent museum in sort of the cellars of the main synagogue in Rome, at least half the collection is antiquities from Libya, synagogue ritual objects, objects of everyday life, kiddush cups, candlesticks, Torah crowns, all kinds of things. And it's a magnificent collection, which gives you a sense of how magnificent and how long-lived this community was. Today, however, I want to start with an almost contemporary event, something that happened barely a month ago in Rome. And then I want to try to place this event into a larger historical context. So the order of this episode will be very different from the usual order, and there won't be much of a travelogue at all since I've never set foot in Libya. However, there was an extremely moving ceremony reported in Haaretz a little over a month ago in Rome, where a few dozen men and women in their 70s and 80s, all welling with emotion, mounted the stage one after the other. Some had difficulty walking and were helped by younger family members. And the people who mounted the stage were not Libyan Jews. They were the former employees of Alitalia, the now defunct Italian state airline, who once worked at the airline's Tripoli office in Libya and their descendants. The ceremony was sponsored by the Association of Libyan Jews in Italy, and it was held at a posh hotel in Rome, where each of these former Alitalia employees was given a certificate of appreciation for having collectively saved approximately 2,500 Jewish lives during the pogrom and riots in Libya, which took place during the Six-Day War, which itself took place 55 years ago this week. Most of those who were honored had never told anyone about the events, not even their close family members, who were learning about their courageous deeds for the first time at this ceremony, which was public. The former manager of Alitalia in Tripoli, a guy named Umberto Vaccarini, said very simply, we did what had to be done. We didn't think then, and we don't think today, that we're heroes. It was an obvious human act for all of us. Now in his 80s, Vaccarini was deputy manager of Alitalia's Tripoli office at the time, and each of these no longer anonymous heroes received a certificate with his or her name and the words, with special appreciation. Now, there are many questions here. First of all, how, when, and why did Jews first come to Libya? And second of all, how, when, and why did the Italians come to Libya? And 
come to run two very important offices of their national airline, one in Tripoli, the capital, and the other in Benghazi, very much the second city. Uh, Libyan Jews have their own sort of origin myth, which is that they came to Libya and settled on the Mediterranean shores 2,800 years ago, which means before the destruction of the first temple. Over the years, according to the Libyan origin myth, Jews continued to find their way there as the area was successively conquered by Greeks, Romans, Byzantines, Arabs, Spaniards, Turks, and finally Italians. Each conquest left its mark on the local Jewish community, but the biggest impression in the minds of Libyan Jews was that left by the Italian occupation, which began in 1911. Under Italian rule, the Jewish community expanded and prospered, with many Jews becoming wealthy property owners until the advent of fascism and the laws that were passed under Mussolini. After World War II began, the situation for this Jewish community worsened very quickly, and Libyan Jews lived under extremely difficult conditions. Jews who had citizenship for allied countries were expelled, and others were sent to detention camps, labor camps, and concentration camps, the most notorious of which was a place called Jado in western Libya, where several hundred died. Hundreds more were sent to Italy and deported from there by train to the concentration camps of Bergen-Belsen and Reichenau. But let's look at some population figures just to get an idea of how important this, at least for most Americans, obscure Jewish community has been at different points in history. First of all, in a city called Sirta, there are the ruins of a synagogue that date to the 10th century BCE, during the reign of King Solomon. So perhaps the Libyan origin myth of being 2,500 years old isn't so far-fetched after all. We know that major settlement took place in the 4th century BCE under the Ptolemies. By the 2nd century of the Common Era, during the time of the Bar Kokhba revolt, there were half a million Jews living in Libya, a community that few of us have ever visited or even heard of unless we have friends or relatives in Rome. During World War II, even the defeat of the fascists did not spell the end of trouble for Jews in Libya. Britain and the Allies liberated Libya and Tunisia in 1942, and life for the Jews there seemingly got back on track, but not for long. In 1951, Libya won independence and was declared a constitutional and hereditary monarchy. But even before that, particularly after the beginning of the Israeli War of Independence in 1948, relations between Jews and Libyan government authorities had already taken a turn for the worse. And from time to time, there were riots and eruptions of violence against Jews. Libya gradually became a very dangerous place for Jews. Of the 38,000 who lived in Libya in 1948, when Israel's war of independence began, three years later, only 7,000 were left. Most of those who departed left to Israel, while a significant minority moved to Italy, and particularly Rome. For reasons best known only to them, most Libyan Jews moved to Rome, and most Egyptian Jews moved to Milano, and their descendants are there to this day. On June 5th, 1967, when the Six-Day War broke out, 
Hundreds of agitated Arabs gathered on the streets of Tripoli and set fire to Jewish businesses and residences. The Beit El Synagogue and its 10 magnificent Torah scrolls decorated with silver and ivory, along with hundreds of religious books and Judaic items, were completely destroyed in one day of rioting. During this pogrom, which went on for several days, at least a dozen Jews were killed and many dozens more injured. Fearing for their lives, Jews hid in their homes. They didn't dare to come out, and their supply of food steadily dwindled. Jews who held foreign citizenship pleaded for help, for help from those countries' embassies and consulates, but these were unable to be of much assistance because of the prevailing lack of law and order. Then at the height of the terror, salvation arrived from an unexpected source. His name was Renato Tarantino, a non-Jewish Italian who ran the Alitalia office in Italy and displayed real nobility and compassion. Tarantino and his deputy Vaccarini, already mentioned at the beginning of this podcast, immediately set out to save as many Jews as possible. Along with other Alitalia employees who showed impressive creativity, they used their status and their ties and a variety of ploys to sneak Jews out right under the noses of the Libyan authorities. They rescued desperate Jews who had somehow made their way to the airport only to find themselves surrounded by Libyan porters seething with hatred, who cursed and spat at them. The Alitalia staff physically shielded the Jews, repelled the rioters, and put the Jews in their car and drove them to safety. At other times, they put the Jews at the front of the line. Vaccarini said, We made up excuses to take passengers off flights, and we put Jews in their places because we knew their lives were in real and immediate danger. He estimated that in those dramatic few days, the Alitalia workers saved at least 2,500 Jews by flying them to Rome. And they didn't only fly them out. One of the Jews who descends from this group of people who left and now lives in Rome commented at this event that the Alitalia people enabled me and my family to purchase dozens of tickets to the furthest and most expensive destinations you could think of, New York, Rio, Miami, whatever. And then when we landed safely in Rome, the company was quick to cancel the tickets and generously refund the money. An interesting and unusual way to transfer funds out of a country that is hostile in every way. Another time when a plane was preparing for takeoff, the staff decided to delay it. They opened the cargo door, removed a lot of luggage, and brought on board Jewish passengers who hadn't been able to get a seat in the passenger section of the plane. As one of these descendants said to the recently departed Renato Tarantino's wife, daughter, and grandchildren, we are here because of your father. We will never forget. And in spite of all these well-known examples of hostility and even violence directed towards Jews, overall, during the past 2,400 years or so, Jews in Libya prospered, particularly in the big cities of Tripoli and Benghazi. Even given the fascist laws and deportations, which began already in 1938, in 1941, 25% of the population of Tripoli was still Jewish, and 44 synagogues were maintained there. Now, when you realize that the whole population of Libya was only about half a million, the Jews at one point represented like 5% of the national population, which is a much larger percentage than Jews represent in the United States, for example. So as I indicated before, when the Six-Day War broke out, New violence and anti-Jewish riots erupted in Libya, and 
Libyan Jews were once again the target of many attacks, which killed several dozen people. The leaders of the Jewish community at this time asked King Idris I to allow the entire Jewish population to, quote-unquote, temporarily leave the country. He consented, even urging them to leave, through an official Italian airlift and the aid of several Italian Navy ships. The Italian Navy helped evacuate more than 6,000 Jews to Rome in one month, and this number does not include the Jews saved by these individual Alitalia employees, which was the focus of the beginning of this podcast. By the end of the Six-Day War, only a few dozen Jews remained in Libya. And as far as we know, there are, for all practical purposes, none left. There is supposedly a lady who's 101 living in an old folks home somewhere in Libya and a couple of other isolated cases like that, but no such thing as a community life and not even a shadow of what there once was. Now, the one question that's still open and should be addressed is, what was Italy doing in Libya in the first place and why and how? And the answer to that is very complicated, but it's basically geopolitical. Towards the end of the 19th century, as people could foresee the gathering clouds of war that led to World War I, in which Germany and Mussolini's Italy were allied against the U.S., the U.K., France, and Russia, both the Italians and the Germans felt that they were vulnerable and in a weaker position to fight a world war if they didn't have colonies in Africa the way England and France did. Now, of course, Russia had no colonies in Africa, but they weren't really thinking about Russia. They were thinking about the great maritime empires of their rivals in Europe, Great Britain and France. So Germany grabbed a few random spots of territory, Togo in West Africa, what is today Namibia in Southwest Africa, it was then called Southwest Africa, and some chunks of what used to be called Kenya, Uganda, and Tanganyika. And it was Tanganyika that the Germans grabbed, at least temporarily. The Italians first grabbed Eritrea and Somalia on sort of the horn of Africa in the far northeast of Africa. And eventually, in 1936, they also grabbed Ethiopia. But they grabbed Libya back in 1911, and Libya was close. It made sense geographically. Also, the Brits were pretty much in strong control in Egypt, and the French were in strong control in Tunisia, Algeria, and Morocco. So Libya was the only place open for picking. And the Italians got it, and they kept it until they were defeated in the war and Libya gained its independence in 1951. They didn't last as long in most of these other places, nor did the Germans. Togo eventually reverted to France, Tanganyika to the UK, and Namibia had this very curious status and it was sort of disputed territory, but autonomous. And for a while, it was administratively part of South Africa, but it is now an independent country. And the one thing that the Germans left in their former colonies in Africa was very good beer and very good cold cuts. The Italians probably got more than they bequeathed to their colonies 
And they certainly, when they absorbed all these Libyan Jews, they got this wonderfully distinctive Libyan Jewish cuisine that is like no other Jewish cuisine in the world. So I think I'm going to leave it at that today. And during the next episode, we will move further west to Tunisia and finally to Algeria, which all have very different histories. And the next two episodes have little, if anything, to do with Italy, but a lot to do with France. Thanks for your attention, and I look forward to talking with you again soon.